Welcome back to another episode of the Royals Farm Report Podcast. My name is Joel Penfield. As always, I'm joined by Alex Duvall. How's it going, man? Joel, I really couldn't be a whole lot better. The Kansas City Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl for the first time in my life. Um, Patrick Mahomes is the best football player in the world, arguably the greatest athlete in the world, given his position and the sport he plays. Um, it is a great time to be a fan of the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, I was at the I was at the AFC Championship game the other day, and there's a couple 15 year olds that were sitting behind me, and uh, you know I'm sitting there, and I, I turn around and ask them at one point. I said, "Do you guys know who Tyler Palco is?" And none of them knew who Tyler Palco was. Oh no! <laughs> and I said, "You know what? I am so happy for you. Sit tight and enjoy the show because you know not only will it not last forever, but man, like this is this is amazing." Um, and thank God those kids didn't have to witness Tyler Palco because that was or Tyler. We've been through a lot. I was say or Tyler Thigpen or Brody Croyle or Brady Quinn or Matt Castle. Like the yeah. we are in an era right now of Chiefs football that we will never forget. It is a great time to be a Chiefs fan. Um, I think they're going to wax the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Um, I I cannot wait. I can absolutely not wait. Um, I, I am absolutely ecstatic right now. As if for those that follow me on Twitter, you know that I'm probably one of the most cynical sports fans you'll probably ever follow. And so I was obviously I thought the Chiefs were going to win the AFC Championship, but I was just waiting because I've that just my sports teams just don't let me have nice things for the most part. So, but once Patrick Mahomes ran in that touchdown at the end of the first half, I was like, it's over. Just give give him the trophy now, man. It's it's incredible, and I two weeks from now we're going to be all you know glued to our couches. And if the Chiefs bring home that that Lombardi trophy. I'm going to need to find a way to get, get to Kansas city for that parade. It's like four and a half hour drive and I work, but I'm going to find a way if I can, man, it's, it's crazy. Oh yeah. I can't wait. I mean, it's, Oh, it's going to be a, if they can win that game, it is going to be a glorious day. Um, in Kansas city sports history. Oh, no doubt about it, man. Would you know, we're talking some, this is a baseball podcast, but you know, obviously football is the big deal right now, but you guys are going to want to hang tight in this on for this podcast episode. It'll be you know another about a twenty five to thirty minute interview that Alex and I just finished with Drew Saylor. He is the Royals minor league hitting coordinator. He spent time with the Pirates the last couple of years in as a hitting coordinator and director of player development. He spent time with the Dodgers for three or four seasons as a Class A manager, twenty eighteen minor league manager of the year. Spent time with the Rockies, played in the minors for a few years as well. You know, just a great baseball mind. I think you're going to be very impressed with what he has to say and what he's going to bring to the Royals in 2020. Yeah, I'm really excited to have Drew on. Um, you know, the Royals, a lot of the Royals hitters struggled last year. Um, you know, while we're, while we're recording this, I'm going to look up really quick. But I don't, I think if I remember correctly, if you go back and look at the Royals hitters last year, it was something like only one hitter under the age of 24, posted a WRC plus, weighted runs created plus of 100 or more that qualified. Um, yeah, I mean, you have Gabriel Cancel, who is 22 at AA, WRC plus of 104. Kalia Lee, 21 years old at AA, 112 WRC plus. If we want to, you know, lower the, the number of plate appearances, let's call it 250 um it changes a you know no actually doesn't change a whole lot at all let's see what where do we have to go to i mean if we go down to 200 does that help 
Yeah, if we go down to 200, you get Travis Jones, 23 years old, double A, 106 WRC+. plus. The point is the Royals did not have very many hitters of prospect age, right? So we're not going to count 25-year-olds. We're not going to count 23-year-olds in rookie ball, but prospects that are about the right age for their level, um, none of them. I mean, we. I mean, seriously, you have Khalil Lee is the only one who exceeded any kind of an expectation. I mean, Cancel you know, had a terrible second half. Travis Jones was hurt a lot. I mean, it was really, I mean, you know, Nick Heath did pretty well, but again, 25 years old, double A, um, kind of bordering on uh, that age and level where we were just talking about. So um, it, I think it's really important that the Royals went out and got the guy that they like here. Uh, Drew Saylor works for the Dodgers organization um, who produced, you know, Corey Seager, Gavin Lux, Cody Bellinger. So, Really excited to see what he brings to the table. I think you guys are really going to like this interview. Um, you know, really, really smart guy, but a man of character as well. So, um, really excited to have him on the show today. Absolutely. You know, you know, like, like you mentioned, there are just a lot of question marks coming into the season about how will some of these guys bounce back, like Melendez and Prado, Matias. You know, you could name another probably dozen guys that really didn't fall, that really fell below expectations in 2019. But I feel like if you would, you know, getting someone like this that has you know, worked for multiple teams and had success at every team that he's been with, an organization that he's been with. I think you, the, to me, the expectations do change. And I think, you know, the, we're going to see a lot of prospects on the upswing in 2020. And I think, you know, we're going to get back to, you know, having less question marks, you know, as, you know, for hitting prospects. You know what the pitchers are going to do. Singer, Kowar, Lynch, Bubich, you know, the list goes on. We know that they're going to continue to be as good as they are. But to have the hitters come back, that just makes this rebuild and the guys that we're bringing up, it makes you feel better that the Royals are eventually going to get out of this hole of losing 90 to 100 games. And these are the guys that can, are going to help bring baseball back in Kansas City to what we saw five or six years ago. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the biggest part of this is, you know, there's a lot of guys that are already there. You know, the the, the beef of your lineup is already intact. You have Soler, Dozier, Mondesi, Salvi, uh, potentially Nicky Lopez, um, you know, you've got a lot of what you need already there. It's just filling out the back half of that lineup, man. And, I, you know, the pitching, like you said, is on its way. I think by the end of 2021, so the end of next summer, you're going to see that most of the pitching staff is in place. If you think the Royals make the playoffs in 2023, the pitching staff's going to be there. So now it's a matter of can Prado, Melendez, Matias get back on their grind. Um, can Khalil Lee continue to be the guy that, you know, fills out the corner outfield for the Royals? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's really important, going to be a really important two years for the Royals. Um, and, and I, for one, could not be happier that Drew Saylor uh, will be the man at the helm um, in terms of the Royals minor league hitting coordinator uh, for this rebuild. Absolutely. So without further ado, let's get into this interview real quick. Before we do that, we'll have a word from a sponsor and then we'll have a great interview with Drew Saylor. Alex and I are now joined by Drew Saylor, the new uh, Royals minor league hitting coordinator, has also spent time with the Pittsburgh Pirates and was the 2018 minor league manager of the year when he managed the Ranch of Cucamonga Quakes in the Dodgers organization, the California League. Uh, we are very pleased to be joined by him now. Drew, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on. 
Absolutely. This is a great opportunity for us to kind of get to know you as you're now a kind of a new member of the Royals organization. You've spent time with, you know, the Rockies and the Pirates and the Dodgers. So you bring, well, you know, a wealth of knowledge from different organizations. We're excited to see what you're going to do for, for the Royals on the, the minor league side of things here soon. Yeah, absolutely. You know, excited to be a part of a first class organization, you know, obviously working from, you know, our new ownership here with uh, the Shermans and, and also obviously with Mr. Glass and his family and, uh, you know, just excited to be a part of such a storied organization and, and can't wait to, uh, you know, bring some ideas, but also continue to add uh, to the organization. Absolutely. Coach, you were, uh, as uh, Joel introduced, you were a minor league manager of the year for the Los Angeles Dodgers organization. And Royals fans listening to this know that the Dodgers are a, are a class A organization when it comes to player development. You know, recently they've produced Cody Bellinger. Corey Seager, Jock Peterson, uh, Gavin Lux, uh, Alex uh, Verdugo's on his way up. I mean, just to name a few. Um, but, but, you know, that experience is probably invaluable, you know, as it pertains to being a minor league manager into a role such as minor league hitting coordinator. Um, what can you tell Royals fans about your experience with the Dodgers organization and how you think that, you know, um, should obviously help you, you know, as we, as we move into the Royals organization here? No, I think that's a great question, Alex. And, and really the thing for me that uh, stands out during my time uh, with the Dodgers was just, you know, how I transitioned um, from Colorado, um, which, again, very good organization. Um, you know, really for me, um, the toughest challenge that I had was just getting up to speed with the uh, analytics and the data. And, you know, it really wasn't a fault of, of any organizations. It just was me being in a fixed mindset. And, you know, when I took the opportunity to go work for uh, Andrew and Farhan and Gabe Kapler, um, you know, they, they challenged me and they said, hey, like we, we believe that you're a you know, good communicator. You build relationships well, you create good cultures, but we know you're missing something. And, you know, we also uh, have an idea of what that actually is. And, uh, you know, I, we took the leap of faith to be able to to go to L.A., um, they definitely were accurate um, in, uh, in being able to identify that I was missing uh, a pretty key component to the game nowadays. And um, you know, during my time there, I got a chance to obviously work with some really special people um, you know, from all uh, you know, departments. It wasn't just from uh, player development, you know, from scouting to research and development to uh, the players to strong mind, um, you know, strength conditioning, a lot of different people. And uh, really just it, it showed just how valuable uh, each one of those departments is to developing the whole person. And for me, uh, being able to be an affiliate that is, you know, 42 miles away uh, from Dodger Stadium and, and learning how to, you know, talk to the media, um, you know, being kind of in the backyard of the big league stadium. You know, you, you had to learn, um, you know, how to navigate those waters, but also you had to learn how to be able to teach the players how to navigate those waters. And, um, you know, really being that minor league manager, uh, coordinate with so many different people having conversations, uh, it really gave me some invaluable experience, um, you know, to be able to, you know, make sure that everyone's in the loop of where things are going. And uh, it's something that we are going to hopefully continue as we transition here to Kansas City. That's you know you brought up a good point that I kind of wanted to ask you about is how do you um, I guess in your you know experienced opinion take a kid who was a first round pick um, maybe has had all kinds of success 
um, you know, in the minor leagues as, you know, a, a professional hitter? Um, and, and how do you convince them to, to take an analytical approach to further their development, um, you know, as a hitter? Maybe, maybe this kid comes from a, from a very old school background. How do, how do you convince them to use the analytics uh, to their advantage if, if it's not something that they've ever used before? You know, I think, um, you know, really being able to, you know, just create curiosity, you know, asking great questions of the players, uh, asking them about their journey, about their path. Um, and then as you start to get more information about how they're wired, how uh, they think and perceive the world at large, and then how they perceive themselves uh, relative to the world, uh, it opens up a lot of different uh, talking points. And then you get a chance to be able to show them, hey, this is you know maybe why you know your strikeout percentage is at 32%. Maybe this is a reason why you know you're not having the type of production that you think you are. And and when you start to unfold and peel back the layers a little bit, uh, you get a chance to have some really uh, great conversations with with people and you know really um, our players nowadays they they're used to having information at their fingertips um, you know I know a lot of times there there's an, an adage out there that we don't want to confuse the player and and I just don't think that that's correct I think that our players if they don't get the answers that they're looking for they're going to go to social media. They're going to go online. They're going to ask a lot of different people. They're going to ask their former teammates that are in other organizations. And, and I think that our players nowadays are naturally inquisitive, but they're also, um, in some regards, uh, contrary. You know, they, they want to go and find the right answers. And it's our responsibility as coaches to be very well-versed and well-rounded uh, with the ways that we're trying to develop and how other people um, in the private sector are developing. You know, and um, one of the things that we're trying to to be able to continue to accelerate here uh, in Kansas City is the curiosity of our coaches and the curiosity of the player, um, because there isn't a linear line in terms of developing players. You know, a lot of our players may need to take some steps back uh, to be able to get a better scope and vantage point of where they're at. Uh, other players are very analytically inclined, and we can give them a couple other additional pieces. Uh, to help peak their curiosity um, and kind of all points in between. And, and that's one of the, the big things that I was able to experience uh, through all the different organizations that I've been a part of. You know, you talk about a traditionalist approach and, and that works. Um, you know, analytics and advanced data, that also works. And, and I think that, again, the, the way that we're going to find uh, the gap margins with all of our players uh, here in Kansas City is to be able to have an understanding of both, uh, learn when to push, uh, learn when to pull, learn when we need to be able to expose them to more information. Uh, and again, that, that's where you're going to find those margins. You're going to be able to accelerate some of the development timelines with players. Um, you know, I think that it is always going to be a blend of both um, because, again, at the end of the day, we are talking about humans and the way that they interpret themselves um, always has a direct effect to the information that they can consume and apply. And, and again, I, I'm not telling you guys anything that you guys haven't read online or anything else like that. Uh, but again, I think it's one of the biggest uh, pieces that we're trying to be able to institute here in Kansas City. 
All right, Coach. So just looking over your career, you know, you played professionally for, you know, four or five seasons, and then you moved right into the dugout as a hitting coach and a manager for up until the 2018 season. Then you go to the Pittsburgh Pirates as a hitting coordinator and player development director. How different and how big of an adjustment was it for you to not be, you know, directly with the same group of guys for 120, 140 games a year, and you're bouncing around, talking to all different players throughout the organization. How, how much of an adjustment was that moving into that kind of bigger role this past season? Well, I, I got a chance, uh, you know, over in Pittsburgh to do both. Uh, it was a hybrid role because they still managed our short season club uh, in West Virginia. Um, I, I guess we may need to have this conversation a year from now, and I'll get a chance to really give you uh, a, a true authentic answer. But um, no, I, I was very blessed, uh, you know, being able to go over to the Pirates organization, um, you know, be able to almost have a dry run a little bit uh, to the role that I currently occupy now. Um, one of the things that I realized um, in in the transition uh, going over to Pittsburgh is when you have a lot of different people, the, the coordination of, of information and player handoffs, it becomes ever more uh, important to those processes because as players move up level to level, um, a lot of times you're you're kind of you know starting from scratch from uh, the relationship uh, you know piece and and the job of the coordinators to make sure that when guys go to those levels that they're they're being handed off and then the coach they're going to and the staff they're going to they can pick up right where the, the previous staff had them. Uh, I think that that was definitely a learning moment of mine. Uh, I think another learning moment is um, I like to go fast. And, and I, I get excited about things and, and having the awareness of where, you know, each individual staff member and player is at and being able to meet them on their, uh, on their journey and then be able to walk with them in that journey is, is incredibly critical uh, to the team and also the individual development piece. And, you know, not to take a, you know, I guess a, a Bill Belichickism, but sometimes you got to keep the main thing the main thing. And and I, I learned that, you know, you know, having those infrastructure pieces being put into place, um, you know, there are times we want to add some you know ancillary processes and pieces to uh, what we're doing. But as long as we keep the main thing, the main thing, uh, we get a chance to be able to develop um, our players and, and our people um, at the rate that we're expecting them to develop. You talk about, you know, the rate that you expect you know a player to develop. And I think that's. Um, you know, something of particular interest to Royals fans is, you know, the team has you struggled at the big league level uh, the last couple of years. And, and this is your first year uh, coming over to the Royals from Pittsburgh. And I know there's probably a ton of, um, you know, not just introducing yourself as a person, but introducing yourself as a coach and, you know, getting to work with all of the hitters in the minor league level or as many as you can. And, um, you know, in, implementing philosophies and strategies and, uh, you know, everything that goes with, you know, being a hitting coach. But moving into, I guess, technically you call it more of a front office role, um, you, you know, the ability to communicate those philosophies and the ability to, um, to, to, get, your, to get your point through, um, you know, there's a lot of experience that comes with that as a manager. But, you know, how, how big of a you know, when you move from the manager managerial role to the front office, how big of a role do you think, um, you know, those philosophies and the ability to communicate them to guys like Khalil Lee and guys like MJ Melendez, 
guys like Gabriel Cancel, uh, Bobby Witt Jr., the, the bigger names in the system, in terms of expediting their development in order to kind of catch them up with the pitchers. So I, there's kind of a twofold question there, but you know, <laughs> the the specific you know hitters in the organization and your ability to communicate those philosophies. Um, you know, how excited are you, I guess, to get after it? Well, obviously, uh, incredibly excited. You know, I, I think that, you know, we're seeing the energy, we're seeing the curiosity from, you know, our hitting coaches, uh, from, you know, other front office executives that have been in some of our meetings and our summits. Uh, and same thing, getting a chance to be able to talk with our major league staff, talk with Terry Bradshaw, talk with uh, Pedro Gafol, uh, and uh, and also, you know, Mabry. And, and I think that that's the part where, um, you know, my role becomes ever more critical because, you know, when you talked about it, and you said it, you know, very directly, like the way that we uh, create our systems and processes, that that's the way that we can speed things up. But I, I think a lot of times um, the, the game has a, a weird wonky way of, of creating, um, you know, these department, you know, pillars or thresholds or standards or whatever you want to call it, uh, because they get so granular and specific where we don't give options to our staff um, and players and the boots are on the ground. And, and really my challenge, especially getting a chance to work up through uh, the different leadership roles, um, I tried to completely reverse that, that thought process, which is I don't want the, the vision of our department to be so specific that people feel restricted. We want to create um, a vision that is um, very wide and expansive because then it creates more options for the people that are on the ground to be able to develop our people. And when you have more options, you get a chance to be able to move faster. And, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, really excited me about uh, the Rose organization. Um, you know, they, they were able to speak to that same type of thought process and that same type of, of visionary piece. And so for me, um, that's what's been fun to be able to hear from a lot of people where maybe they don't say it um, as explicitly as that. Uh, but they they say it in their own language, and, and we're all under the you know the same idea and the same vision. And so um, I think to be able to answer just the, the genesis and the central part of the question, um, we we are uh, actively trying to uh, get our coaches to understand uh, that each one of our players are different, but they got to know who they are as hitters. You know, we don't want um, you know a a run scorer to try to you know hit the ball and lift the ball in the air all the time. We also don't want our run producers to try to shove balls to the opposite gap. We want them to be able to drive the baseball. Um, and, and understanding that uh, is critical to each one of our players' development. And so, you know, as we continue to move forward, um, you know, as a department but as an organization, um, you know, those conversations are going to be critical. And we want our players to be able to know exactly who they are because when they do that, they, they get a chance to be able to come to terms of, of who of what their lot in the game is. And a lot of times the, the reason why players don't produce or reach their ceilings is because they don't really know where they're supposed to be or who they're supposed to be. When you get that idea, no, this is really who I am, uh, and, and you sell out to that idea, uh, that's where you get a chance to see guys really be able to maximize uh, their skill set um, and their talent. You know, I think there's a lot of fans in Kansas City right now that um, are seeing firsthand uh, with the Chiefs' defense going on a little bit, headed to the Super Bowl. What a 
you know, what good coaching can do. Um, you know, you take your, take the players at hand and, and fit a scheme toward them and, um, and see how quickly they can make a turn when they're being schemed for what works for them versus, you know, a cookie cutter approach and a coach who says, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, pass or fail, this is how it's going to be no matter what. And so I think it speaks volumes, you know, to, I guess some, some self-awareness on your end that, you know, there's players with different skill sets and there's not one approach to every hitter. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to hear, you know, a refreshing, um, voice i guess that you know everybody's different and that we're going to find a way for our hitters to be successful and who they are and a couple of those hitters that i know royals fans are you know really anxious to see how they come out in 2020 uh three the you know the big three from the 2018 south atlantic league champions you know mj melendez nick prado suli matias um you know there's a, i think i heard a story one time that when dave island was hired as the royals pitching coach um you know they dropped off uh tape of Luke Hochaver at his doorstep and said, here you go. Here's project number one. And I can assume that when, you know, in conversations with Dayton Moore and JJ Piccolo, uh, you know, when you were hired as the Royals minor league hitting coordinator, that Nick Prado, MJ Melendez and Sully Matias kind of had to be high on the priority order um, in terms of let's make sure these are fixed. Um, so I, I, you know, they are all extremely talented. Sully was a high dollar prospect coming out of the Dominican Republic uh, MJ Melendez was an early second round pick and Nick Prado being a first round pick, you know, how excited are you to get to work with these, you know, really high profile, high talent guys that are also known to be very intelligent and, um, you know, struggled a little bit in 2019, but clearly have all the capabilities, um, to potentially carry a big league lineup someday. Well, obviously, the, the talent alone uh, can make any coach or coordinator or front office executive very excited. Um, the, the thing for me, and you hit on it, um, which is you know arguably probably just as important, um, it, is the types of people that they are. And, you know, and getting a chance to, to talk with all three of them you know, through the fall and through the winter, um, it, it, it is really exciting to be able to have that type of talent that's in here. You know, and 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 again, yeah, th those guys struggled last year. But I also think, too, that there is incredible amounts of value that we can derive uh, from when we fall short uh, of our expectations. You know, we get a chance to talk about, you know, goal setting. We get a chance to talk about, you know, um, you know, compartmentalization. We get a chance to talk about, you know, external voices. We get a chance to talk about you know, really what the root cause was of, of their, you know, seasons. And, you know, a long time ago, my, my dad, who was, you know, in education for, you know, 20 you know, plus years, coach um, high school baseball for 30 plus years. Uh, he told me something when I was younger, um, when I was in uh, college and he said, Hey, you know, Drew, listen, he goes, at the end of the day, he goes, you know, you're going to have really good coaches. You're going to have really bad coaches and, and all points in between. And he goes, the lesson you learn from the good coaches is just as valuable as the ones that you learn from the bad ones. And, and again, when I apply that, that idea to, to players, it's just as valuable for us to go through the failures uh, of our careers because it's only going to help us become more persistent. It's only going to help us become more aware of our mental state and emotional state um, as we continue to go through those things because – we all know, I mean, the, the stats are very, you know, you know, 
glaring. 12% of all of our minor leaguers will play one meaningful inning in Major League Baseball. And then as you talk about everyday regulars and, and arbitrary eligible guys, it, it gets you know down to the single digits. And, and really what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop our players, um, you know, just that endurance skill set. And that skill set, it, it's it goes far beyond just the baseball field. It goes to life skills. And and I really feel that that's one of the things that's been a lot of fun uh, to be able to talk with those three in particular, um, because they are very aware of, of, you know, what they're trying to improve upon, uh, what some of the things that they fell short of last year. And I really believe that uh, that experience is going to prove uh, to be um, really way more valuable than any successful season they've ever had. And it's going to continue to pay dividends on into their careers. You mentioned the the positive attitudes that they bring to that. I, I feel like I was reading an interview, maybe it was with Alec Lewis over at The Athletic, um, or maybe with Jeffrey Flanagan at MLB.com. I can't remember where I read the interview, but I feel like I read an interview where Nick Prado, they were asking him about hitting in Wilmington and the struggles he had. I think it was early on in the season. And he said something to the effect of, what am I going to learn by knocking the ball all around the park all the time? And it was just, it was such a good response during a season in which he was really struggling, especially being a first round pick. Um, you know, ha- ha- coach, have you, have you ever coached in Wilmington or were you too far away to ever have made it? Out that <laughs> way? Uh, uh, I guess fortunately, unfortunately, uh, most of my coaching career until I uh, got to Pittsburgh, I was actually West of the Mississippi. So uh, I have not uh, been to, uh, I think it's a uh, Frawley stadium, correct? Yeah. And, but but I, I've heard stories. Um, you know, we had the interstate out in uh, in the outfield. Um, there's no hitter's eye that's there, um, especially at night. I know it can be a little bit more daunting. And believe me, there's you know we can talk probably about for another hour, hour and a half in terms of uh, vision gazing strategies and and how light plays a significant part of that. But but again, I think that you know there, there's other guys that have to go there and hit. We've had players that have had success there before. And and again, I, I look at, you know, that ballpark and 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 again, as beautiful a place that that I've heard that it is and, you know, how nice the Carolina League. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we got to find ways to be able to produce. You know, there's there's tougher ballparks that are out there. Um, there's tougher ballparks in the big leagues. And, you know, it's kind of similar uh, you know thought process when I was in Colorado. Like you know, at the end of the day, it's five thousand two hundred eighty feet above sea level. You know, if you're a pitcher. You know, you, you got to find a way to compete. Another team comes in there and finds a way to, to get it done. So, um, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, that's a very, very mature response um, from Nick. It does not surprise me one bit getting a chance to talk with him. Um, there, there's a lot about uh, Nick Prado that, you know, Royals fans can get very excited about. Uh, it's not just, you know, the skill set that we see, uh, you know, whenever you walk into a ballpark, which made him a first rounder, uh, but just him as a person. Um, and, and how he perceives the world at large. There's a lot to be excited about with him. All right, Coach, this has been an incredible, uh, just incredible to listen to you talk about you know, what you're going to bring to Kansas City and what to, we can expect in 2020. We can't thank you enough for your time today. But before we get you out of here, we always ask this, last, this one question to everybody that we interview. If you could go back and watch one moment in baseball history live in person, what would it be? Whew. Um, well, I, I think going back and, and watching Kurt Gibson's home run uh, against the Oakland Athletics, I think that that'd be great. I would I would try very hard <laughs> if I was there uh, not to be like the other uh, fans that were already trying to run to their cars to be able to beat the traffic out of Dodger Stadium. 
Um, I think that'd be a great one. Uh, but there, there's plenty of moments, I think, that even going into, uh, you know, other, you know, baseball, you know, aspects. Don Larson's, you know, perfect game in the World Series. It'd be awesome. Um, yeah, I think going and watching, uh, you know, Mark McGuire uh, beat Roger Maris's record, even just Roger Maris, you know, beating the Babes record. So, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of really cool uh, baseball moments uh, that I like to go back and be able to revisit. Uh, it's such a great question because there's just so much in our sport that, you know, that you could go back and see. And like, my answer changes every single time I ask the question. That's what makes <laughs> it so fascinating. Absolutely. I, I think I gave you like, you know, six or seven. I, um, I, I was very blessed to be able to grow up in a, uh, in a very strong, uh, you know, sports family uh, and really value just the history and the journey and the different people that have created our, our games and sport in general, um, you know, made it what it is today. And, and again, I, I, I look back at those moments, uh, you know, very frequently and just wish I could. I was alive during some of those. It just would be incredible to watch. Well, Coach, once again, we can't thank you enough for, for joining us today. I'm sure this won't be the last time that we get you on here. For anyone that hasn't followed you on Twitter yet, where can they do that? Uh, you can follow me at DrewSailor19. It's S-A-Y-L-O-R. That's my Twitter handle. All right, Coach, thank you very, very much for your time today. Appreciate it, Joel. Thanks, Alex, and I look forward to talking with you guys soon, all right? Absolutely. Thanks, this sir. won't be the last time. Thank you once again to Drew Saylor for coming on and talking with us about uh, what we should expect to see in 2020 from the Royals and talk about his experiences in minor league baseball, coaching, playing, managing, and kind of what he's doing now uh, with the Royals. It gives me a lot of excitement uh, and definitely has kind of changed my thinking of you know, how the hitters are going to develop in 2020 when you have a guy like that uh, in your organization. Yeah, for sure, and especially coming off of 2019 where the the hitters in the Royal system struggled so mightily, you know, across the board, um, you know, it, you know, it's good to see a, a fresh face in there to maybe bring, um, bring in some new ways of looking at hitting, um, some new strategies, new philosophies. And, you know, for a guy that worked with the Dodgers, I mean, we talked about it earlier in the podcast, but Pete, Jack Peterson, uh, Corey Seager, uh, Cody Bellinger and Alex Verdugo and, and Gavin Lux, right. They just continually crank out good hitters. Um, so hopefully this is a sign of things to come. Not that the Royals will all of a sudden, you know, be the Dodgers, but, um, you know, bring in whatever made those guys special, um, bring some of that, you know, over to the system and straighten out guys like Nick Prado, MJ Melendez and Sully Matias. Absolutely. You know, the Dodgers are, you know, a class organization when it comes to player development, they just seem to hit on everybody that they bring in, uh, you know, drafting obviously in the high rounds, but still like they, they find ways to make these guys, you know, just as successful as they possibly can be as quickly as they can as well. Like Gavin Lux, I watched him in double A and he just flipped a switch in the middle of May and he was just hot the whole rest of the year. And then he saw what he went and did in the Pacific coast league where no one could stop him. And he had a pretty good, you know, last month, month and a half of the season in LA. So you'd see just, that's just kind of as another guy like Bellinger, Seager, you know, you, the guys that you talked about and he got to manage these guys. So he knows what it's like to be around some of the best, professional hitters in the game of baseball in that organization i can only imagine what he can do for some of these guys i'm excited to see and i know that you know, we talked about it with him a little bit but those guys have to be a top priority and i would expect to see hopefully a bounce back from some of those guys heading into 2020 yeah and i think we will for sure because you know a guy like mj melendez guys like nick prado Sully matias those are high profile you know, elite talent guys. It's not like they just stopped being great athletes. They didn't just stop, you know, having plus plus tools 
um, in different spots across the board. Um, it was it was one thing that kind of held him back, and it was making con- now. I say it was one thing. It is the most important thing yeah. in order to be a professional <laughs> right. baseball player. So let's not make let's not make light of that. But it's not like you know they just weren't hitting the ball hard. They just you know it, it's just a matter of maybe it's a mechanical thing. Maybe it's an approach thing. Maybe it's a you know a what we're looking for you know type of philosophy. Um, but the tools didn't disappear. You know those guys are still heady baseball players. So. Um, I expect for them to make a comeback, and maybe they don't ever return to the top 100 status that we thought that they could, you know, a couple of years ago. But I fully expect them to to make some uh, good strides here with a uh, coach Sailor at the helm. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to another topic, just talking about the Royals here. We're getting that much closer to spring training. The Royals have invited 26 non-roster players to spring training uh, to participate with the big league club for a little while. To name a few, it's you know just like your big name pitchers of Bubich, Singer, Coar, Lynch, um, and a few guys like Braden Shipley, Trevor Rosenthal, uh, catcher MJ Melendez, uh, Gabriel Cancel, Manuel Rivera, Kylas Bell, Khalil Lee, to, and that's just to name a few guys. Uh, was there anyone on this list that kind of surprised you that they got a non-roster invite, or did, does this list pretty much hit exactly who you thought was going to be there? Um, nothing too surprising. I will say that you know. It's important not to judge the names too quickly on this because, you know, in spring training, you need as many pitchers and catchers as you can get. Um, and so the catchers, you know, I will never be surprised when, you know, a catcher gets an invite to big league spring training because they just need dudes behind the plate. But in terms of the arms, I do think it's, I don't know about encouraging. It's interesting to see guys like Ofredi Gomez, Arnaldo Hernandez, um, guys that were who, who were axed off the 40-man roster this offseason. Um, they still got the, the invite to big league spring training. Um, that doesn't surprise me, but I do think it's encouraging that the Royals are willing to give them another shot. Um, the two guys I'm most excited to see on this list are Daniel Tillo and Tyler Zuber. Um, not surprised whatsoever that they got the invite, but I think the Royals in terms of exceeding expectations this year, the best way they can do that is to solidify the bullpen and I think Kyle Zimmer being healthy all year last year you know I really don't care how Kyle Zimmer pitched last year he pitched and that was what was important um so I'm excited to see him in the bullpen again I'm excited to see Dan Tillo I'm excited to see Tyler Zuber um you know these guys I think are going to get shots in the big league bullpen that could really boost the performance of that bullpen overall so uh Ian Kennedy will still be here as we know so I'm excited to see how the bullpen can perform this year. I'm excited to see Daniel Tillo and Tyler Zuber in that role. Um, but as, in, as far as the other guys, really the only thing that I think is noteworthy at all is that Eric Mejia is listed as an outfielder on this list. Um, you know, there's a ton of infielders and only three outfielders, so maybe they were just putting him in there. Um, but maybe they're going to give him a, a long-term look as, a, as an outfielder. Um, I still think Eric Mejia is a guy that you can put on your roster he can play second base, third base, shortstop, left field, center field, and maybe some right field. Um, so I still think he's got super utility capabilities. Um, but to see him listed as an outfielder, um, you know, definitely I think could potentially speak to what they think about, um, you know, his future with the organization. Yeah, he seems like the perfect guy, Eric Mejia does, of a 26th man on a roster that can fill any role you possibly need. He may not hit a, a ton. But if nothing else, he can give you a spot start at second, at third, 
uh, you know, anywhere in the outfield on any given night. And a guy like that is invaluable, especially when you're able to get that extra roster spot this year. I'm with you. I think Daniel Tillo and Tyler Zuber are really exciting. Obviously, Tyler, a friend of the, you know, the podcast and the show and the, you know, the pod and the, you know, the site and all that. Daniel Tillo was awesome for Team USA since, you know, it's 96 with 97 with sink out of the bullpen. I love that. Um, you know, and, and the Royals need lefty relievers. Uh, no, I hope Richard Lovelady, you know, bounces back and has a good year. I know he will. Uh, you know, Tim Hill and Tilo and, you know, in the bullpen. I really like that staff just right there as a whole. I'm excited to see Coar and Lynch and Boobich and Singer all get their opportunities. We know that uh, Brady, it's been told that Brady Singer is going to get every chance to make the big league rotation out of spring training. I would expect that he's going to, you know, compete to the very end. I, you know, and, you know, try and stave off heading back down to, to double A or to, you know, to sit in uh, Omaha for a little bit. I think there's a lot to like about what we're going to see from these guys. I'm excited to see MJ Melendez like and Khalil Lee. Hope that they, you know, I hope Melendez obviously bounces back like we mentioned earlier. I think he will. I think he's too good, and the tools are too loud for him not to. Um, it, you know, spring training you can take it with a grain of salt, but to see some of these guys uh, get their opportunity with, you know, the big leaguers for a little bit is going to be exciting to watch. Yeah, for sure. I think that's the that's the coolest part about spring training is getting to watch you know, these younger kids compete with big leaguers in any capacity. You know, I, I love opening weekend of spring training because when you buy a ticket, you go out there and it's the starting lineup on day one, man. It's Salvi, it's Gordo, it's Witt. And then by the ninth inning, it's 18-year-olds from A-ball, like, or I guess maybe not this year for the Royals, but you'll get guys like Kyle Isbell, Khalil Lee, um, Gabriel Cancel, Emmanuel Rivera. And on the same field that Gordo, Witt, and Salvi were just playing on, um, and so it's a really cool thing to be able to see. Um, but that's why I love opening spring opening weekend to spring training. I'll be there again this year. But, uh, yeah, the, the, this this roster excites me. Um, but we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, I'm hoping to get down to spring training at some point this year. It's looking doubtful. But, man, if I can get down there for just a weekend. I'm, I, I'm, I've been down there for a couple of years doing the Sabre Analytics Conference with Oklahoma State. Uh, obviously, I'm graduated now, so i got to uh, got to find my own way down there. But, man, spring training is so much fun, especially in Arizona. Oh, for sure. I mean, the golf courses down there are pristine as well. So you can catch a game, play some golf. There's a few places to shop. Just enjoy the warm weather. Um, absolutely love Arizona in February. No doubt. So last thing we're going to get into, uh, we're recording this on Friday. The interview that we recorded with um, with Drew Saylor was on Tuesday. So I know it, you know we're recording a little bit later. Uh, we wanted to redo what we talked about with the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame. We talked about it a little bit after the interview with Drew, but at the time we didn't know who actually had gotten in. Besides, we knew obviously Derek Jeter was going to make it, but we were just kind of speculating about what was going next. We know now it's a two-man class with Derek Jeter at 99.7% of the votes, and then Larry Walker in his 10th year on the ballot gets in. Alex, what do you think about these two guys going into the Hall of Fame? I thought Larry Walker was so well-deserved. I was, I was legitimately excited to hear his name um, you know, on TV when they were announcing it, I was, I was, I was so excited for Larry Walker because he, I thought he was a shoe in, maybe not as a first ballot guy, whatever, but I thought he's a shoe in for the Hall of Fame, and then to be on your last year on the ballot and not be in yet, man, that was, was so frustrating. I, and I, and it didn't look like he was going to make it. So pumped to see him in. Derek Jeter obviously was going to be make the Hall of Fame and. You know, one thing that I think is interesting about the unanimous conversation, and, and I and I don't know where I sit on this. Part of me thinks that's dumb. Who cares? Whatever. But the other part of me 
thinks, you know, if if one guy doesn't vote for Derek Jeter to get somebody else an extra vote, that's fine. If 10 guys do it, that's fine because Derek Jeter still makes the ballot. But if all the voters just decided I'm not going to vote for Derek Jeter because everybody else is going to vote for Derek Jeter and I want to get Larry Walker some extra votes, well, then Derek Jeter doesn't make the Hall of Fame. And so I think it's the responsibility of the voters every year, no matter what, to vote for the 10 most deserving players or however many they think. Um, But that includes Derek Jeter. So not voting for Derek Jeter I think is innocent. Like, I don't think there's somebody out there trying to stiff Derek Jeter. But I think you opened up Pandora's box by thinking that that's okay. Because if everybody did it, well, then now it's a a, a travesty. So it's kind of an interesting thing, the unanimous vote. You know, whatever, last year somebody abstained, so Mariano Rivera could be a unanimous Hall of Famer. Um, uh, But I don't know, man. It's it's an interesting conversation, but – I was just pumped that Larry Walker was able to get in on his 10th and final appearance on the I was so excited because it was looking like just the way the projections fall usually. Ryan Thibodeau, who does the ballot tracker, he's talked about normally you see about half the ballots announced before the... The, hall, the guys that make it in are announced, and then the rest will fall in after that. Normally, you're going to lose about 5 to 10%, usually, of whatever percentage is announced to that point because you only have half the ballots in and the sample size is still kind of small. So when Larry Walker was sitting at about 78 to 80%, you think he's probably going to fall off and finish at like 73 or 74%. Like it was looking at that was about the projection. He finishes at 76, and I think there should have been way more votes for him than that. Uh, he, there was no reason for him to finish that close to the threshold of 75% to get in. Uh, more than deserving. Obviously, I didn't get to watch a ton of his career just because he played most of his prime before I was old enough to really recognize like how great he was. But when you look at the numbers, they don't lie. and he, That dude is a, a for sure Hall of Famer. People wanted to use Coors Field against him, when he, but he played less than half of his career played appearances. At Coors, like at Coors Field, he was mostly playing for the Expos uh, when he really started to get really good, and then he won an MVP in Colorado. So I, I think he's he's more than deserving. It's very exciting. Did you see the SpongeBob shirt that he was wearing <laughs> on the when he got? That's yes. fantastic. Like that's a, that should make him a Hall of Science. Famer to begin with. Yeah, no, I thought so too. That was a fantastic shirt to be wearing. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if I saw the backstory of that, but it was an awesome yeah. shirt. And to go into my here's my my thoughts on the Derek Jeter thing. So. Do I think Derek Jeter should have been a unanimous Hall of Famer? Probably not. I, I don't. Th- I think he was for sure was over 90, 90 to 95%. Like he's a first ballot guy, no doubt about it. But my, my point is you're, you have 397 guys that voted on the Hall of Fame this year. 396 voted for Derek Jeter. Like if you're that one guy that's not voting for Derek Jeter, it feels like you're just trying to be contrary or trying to. I don't know what the, that person was trying to pull. I don't think we know who it is. Uh, nothing was announced. I imagine they're going to hide behind an anonymous ballot because of reasons. But it's, I don't think Derek Jeter should have been a unanimous Hall of Famer. For him, for him to fall one vote short for that, like for whatever reason, to me feels ridiculous. Yeah, and, and like I was saying, you know, it is possible somebody was just, you know, egoing it up. Oh, I'm but sure. I, I do think there's a chance that. I do think there's a chance that you know somebody's like, "Hey, Derek Jeter's going to get in. Whatever, I'm going to I'm going to make sure Larry Walker gets in. Vote for my nine other guys and Larry Walker." So, 
I do think there's a chance that there was nothing wrong with that. But again, it's this idea that people are not voting for the most deserving players. And if everybody did that, you know, then we have a serious issue on our hands. So um, I tweeted, I think that the Hall of Fame voting process is broken. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, it absolutely is. Um, I I totally agree with you. And and, and like guys like John Heyman, right, voting for Bonds but not Clemens with no reason, with no explanation. It makes no sense. And then I think the biggest problem is, like if John Heyman voted for Bonds, not Clemens, and you disagree and he explains it, you can disagree all day long, but if he explains it, it's his vote. He can do what he wants with it. But then to go on Twitter mocking people because, oh, I didn't vote for your guy. Like, I don't like Roger Clemens. Like, I want you to be fair. And to sit there and mock, well, he, I mean, not me specifically, but to t- mock people, in my opinion, because I'm John Heyman, I do what I want. It's what is wrong with you? And I think there's a lot of that in baseball, um, especially amongst, you know, uh, you know, pitchers and hitters that feel disrespected by bat flips or by celebrating strikeouts or whatever. Um, there's just too much ego in baseball that I think is just, I don't, it's not ruining game by any stretch of the imagination, but it is frustrating. Um, and I just wish we could get rid of it. Like, why can't we all, you know, act civil and, and have fun and enjoy the game that we are playing because it is a game, right? And like in the grand scheme of life, like, you are playing a game for a living. You are voting on a game for a living. Like, lighten up and, and, and treat each other with a little more respect than I think people are treating each other with uh, at the moment. My biggest gripe with the, the John Heyman ballot is, for one, it was a, a tone-deaf sort of tweet of, have at it. Like, we all knew that we were going to give him crap, and then he comes back and tries to defend it without any sort of rationale. But my biggest gripe with his ballot is he voted for Larry Walker for nine years and then left him off in his final year. Like, that, to me, made no sense. Yeah, and again, it's just, I think he, so one thing he said on Twitter was, I don't vote the way other people vote. And then he defended not voting for Larry Walker with, well, other people weren't voting for him. It's like, dude. Brilliant. Like, and it's just, it's just the, like stuff like that where, you know, you and I aren't as experienced and aren't as knowledgeable probably as guys like John Heyman. But we can at least put together a more logical vote than somebody like John Heyman did. And that's where the frustrating thing is. It's not that you and I deserve Hall of Fame vote. That's not at all what I'm saying. But if John Heyman's going to act that way, he doesn't deserve one either, man. Yeah, that's and ridiculous. So, you know, I'll, I'll jump off John Heyman's soapbox there, but um, the Hall of Fame process is, is certainly broken. And in that regard, in people making irrational decisions, uh, before we leave today, uh, Clint Scholes, um, I don't know what is that. I'm not looking at his Twitter page right now. I think it's just at Clint Scholes um, on Twitter. He writes for RoyalsAcademy.com, formerly of uh, Baseball Prospectus. Been covering the Royals for a long time. Tweeted out, um, is Billy Butler a Royals Hall of Famer? And something like 59% of Royals fans said no. And I think that is so disingenuous. That, that was just I mind-boggling when, Butler, I, when I hit, when I yeah. hit yes, because I, I think he is. And to see the no significantly more than the yes to me was mind-boggling. Yeah, and I guarantee you if you ran Eric Hosmer out there, people would say yes, yeah. which leads me to this point. If Billy Butler was two years younger than he is and played two years, started his career two years later than he started, finished two years later than he finished, and put up the exact same numbers, nothing changes. You just move his career back two years. 
and he posts a 136 WRC plus in 2014 and a 117 WRC plus during the World Series run. He's a shoe in for the Royals Hall of Fame, and 90% of Royals fans would vote yes. But because he was too old to be on that team, he gets left off. And again, so I think it's just a disingenuous vote by a lot of Royals fans because thousands of people voted in it. Um, and so um, I think Billy Butler is a shoe in to be a Royals Hall of Famer. I hope he gets in. Um, I don't really see a reason to leave him off. Um, if nothing else, for being the Royals All Star during the bad years, yes, he was the Royals All Star in 2012 when the when the All Star game was in Kansas City. You know, Hall of Fames are supposed to be about, about the best players, but they're supposed to tell a story. Yeah, too. you know, it's still a museum. So for that reason, I hope Billy Butler gets in because I think he's deserving. So, and uh, if I if I could pick one highlight from his career to to lead off his you know video montage when he's inducted in the Royals Hall of Fame is him stealing second in Game Three of the ALDS. Against the, uh, against the Angels. Oh, that sure. that has to and lead off the, his. That has to lead off his video. Think, oh my gosh, yes! And, and then he goes up and he tries to do the, the Gerard Dyson. What is the damn? Yeah. Yes, I think the number two needs to be just a montage of Royals fans booing Robinson Cano <laughs> because that was the most amazing. Like, I was there for that home run derby. Like, I was in the stadium. And when the booing started, it was pretty funny. But then as Robinson Cano continued to not hit home runs, the booing got louder, and they actually started cheering for his outs. <laughs> I remember Dude. that. I remember that very And I remember there were people like, oh, he's, he's, that's so sad. We should feel bad. It's like, no, screw that guy. <laughs> um, so I was I was pumped when that happened. That was, that was, all, that was a funny moment in history. And while I do, you know, if that was Robinson Cano's only home run derby, I'd feel bad about it. But the dude won a home run derby, um, decided to act, you know, decided to snub Billy Butler after it would be one thing to not pick Billy Butler. It's a whole other thing to say, I'm going to pick Billy Butler if he has a good year or I'm going to pick a Royals player. If they have a good year, Billy Butler goes out and is what third or fourth. And, mm, he was, he was doing really well. He hit, hit a lot of home runs in the first half of that season. And then to get to snub him like that was a, Thought it was poetic justice. Yeah, no, so, no doubt. Um, enjoyed that home run derby immensely. Yeah, but then I just need something about the, his barbecue sauce I'd give out after home runs. <laughs> I mean, the the that man is so Kansas City. Well. He had his own barbecue sauce. How can you leave him out of the Hall of Fame like for that alone? Come on, guys. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent in that regard. So hopefully Billy makes it in because I think Royals fans got that one wrong as well. So my last point. So for. You know, from the time we recorded the interview to now, uh, it's been announced that Alex Gordon is coming back for one more year. We'll just hit on this really quickly. I'm sure we'll talk about this more as the season rolls on. Um, as great as it is to have that veteran in the locker room again, um, I feel like they should have just ended on a high note and let him ride off into the sunset, either to another team or retire. I feel like him coming back in 2020 is not going to change his legacy in a positive manner, I feel like I could only worsen it if he has a dud of a year like we saw, not last season, but in 2018 and 2017. I, I'm i not, and I, and I think the Royals have so many guys that they need to evaluate and look at to see what they have before some of these prospects start to come up and hopefully have a, you know, a run of success here soon. This feels like them trying to do too much once again, trying to kind of waver in competing and tanking. Yeah, I, I don't think it has anything to do with competing this time around. I think it's more of having him as an example in the clubhouse for the younger guys. But 
I guess part of my like, and I don't know, like I've never been in a big league clubhouse. I, I've never played professional baseball. So I hope this doesn't sound arrogant or naive, but Hunter Dozier was quoted as saying, man, he's our leader. He's this, 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 this. And on a young team, you need that. Hunter Dozier, like, dude, you're 27. Yeah. Like, at what point do you stop, you know, and, and I guess this is just a genuine question. At what point do you get old enough? You don't need someone to show you the way anymore, and you, and you become the leader. You know, the Royals are going to have, without Gordon, would have had one player on their roster this year, 30 years old or older. Or, I'm sorry, one position player, and that would have been um, Whit Merrifield. But you have Salvador Perez, who has won every accolade you can think of. You have Whit Merrifield. You have Danny Duffy. Um, I don't know that it was a necessary signing, but I'm also not in that clubhouse. So, um, you know, if the Royals deem him to be necessary, I, you know, I'm not going to argue with that. But I also think it's kind of like worrisome that they didn't think there was anybody else in that clubhouse that could fulfill that role. Um, and so if you if you think Gordon is that necessary, then I'm, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to be confident in the, I guess, the clubhouse uh, going into 2021 because, what, one year is going to make a, that big of a difference for Merrifield or for Dozier or for whoever. So um, I think it's interesting. I don't know that it's telling. I may be reading too much into that, but – I do think that that it says a lot about how they view their outfield because if they thought that Brett Phillips or Bubba Starling or Nick Heath were ready to start day one, I don't think Gordon would be back. Um, so I think it says more about the outfield than it does the clubhouse, but both concern me to that regard. Yeah, I think it is a little bit concerning that you have to bring back a, what, 30? Is Alex Gordon 36 or 30? Does that sound right? I thought he was 34, but yeah, generally but point he's mid-30s. Either way, mid-30s. Uh, guy, you know, he had a good year last year. Uh, I don't think it was anything, uh, you know, unexpected. I think he, he definitely bounced back in a contract year, which is exactly, you know, what you want. But to ha- need him to come back when you have guys that are in the pipeline ready to go, or at least should be ready for significant at-bats and significant playing time, I think that's very telling of where they are at and what the organization thinks of them. So that is a little concerning. But if he comes out and has a similar year, uh, I think, you know, that's, you know, that's obviously a huge win. And I think it kind of, you know, it shows at least that he, you know, cared at the end, I guess. I, I don't know. But for him to have, at least, have only one good year out of four from that big contract is extremely frustrating. But for him to come back for one more year, if it works out great, if not, well, we kind of saw that coming too. Yeah, no, I can't disagree with anything you said there. All right, let's get on out of here, and we will be back at some point, hopefully next week, with another interview, another podcast. Uh, we will talk to you all then. Where can everyone follow you on Twitter, Alex? You find me at Duvy, D-U-V-Y underscore 013. You can follow the site at Royals Farm. Follow me at JT Penfield. We're getting really close to the season. There's going to be more t- content coming out on the site, more podcasts in the future, and we will talk to you guys on the next episode.